Good morning, church. There we go. Good. Um, my name is Ian. I've been a member for about seven months here. Um, and I've been um, with the pastor doing a discipleship. He invited me. Um, he gave me the opportunity to open up the sermon for him. So I invite you guys to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. Thinking back at that moment on Wednesday, I was like, how could I say no to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Like, I just can't. <laughs> Let's see. And so our passage reads, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What then? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this is my cup, the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat it, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But we judge ourselves truly, we will, but if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it is not for the judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this amazing opportunity that you have given me. Thank you for allowing us to gather together today this morning in your presence, Father. Te pido que hables profundamente a los corazones, Señor. Ears you have dug for us, Father. And I just, I just ask you that other than just hear, that you allow us to understand this message this morning. Sé tu Padre, el que hable a nuestros corazones. Sé tu Jesús, llegando y cultivando esta palabra, Padre. Let's continue the worship. Que no cese la adoración, and continue the communion, y que no cese la comunión. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Aaron. Amen. 
you may have caught, we're doing the Lord's Supper this morning. And so we'll be in 1 Corinthians. The Lord's Supper has been known by a few different words. Lord's Supper, probably we, if we were to take a poll, probably communion would be the word that we use most often. The Eucharist, it's another word. Famously, on the night of Jesus's cruci- uh, the night before Jesus was crucified, he instituted the Lord's Supper. And at that meal, he took up the bread and he took up the cup and, and he said, this points to what I'm going to do. And he opened the door for us to be a part of what is called the new covenant. And he was celebrating a meal that, uh, during the Jewish year that was called Passover. And he was reinstituting that very meal around himself. Passover had been celebrated by God's people, been a major holiday for, for centuries. And at the Passover, if you, if you know what they were celebrating, you read the story of Exodus, God had delivered his people from the land of Egypt. He had sent nine plagues up until this point. And if you ever think about it, he didn't need to send 10 plagues. If you think about, like, why would God do something like that? Couldn't he have just said, all y'all dead, all y'all move? He could have just done that really easily. But to demonstrate his might, to demonstrate his power, his glory, he sends nine plagues. And then there's a tenth one, though. He says to Moses and through Moses to the Israelite people that he is going to take out the firstborn in the land of Egypt and that they needed to get ready. You can read in Exodus 12 the account where God gives the instructions of what they're supposed to do. In short, you kill a lamb, you eat the lamb, you take the blood and you put it over of the lamb and you put it over the doorpost. And then that night, as you get ready to leave the next day, that night the angel of death would come and if you saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over, right? He would pass over. But for those who did not have the blood to cover them, the firstborn in the land of Egypt would be taken out. And so that night the angel of death came, Egypt was judged, and then the next day God let through Pharaoh. Pharaoh let God's people go. Paul later in 1 Corinthians 5 would draw the connection between Passover and Jesus. And he would say in in verse 7 that Jesus is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. And so the Lord's Supper and what Christ does the next day on the cross is a fulfillment of the Passover meal. You can draw parallels. The lamb was a sacrifice on behalf of the people Jesus is the spotless lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. The lamb's blood was put above the doorpost. Jesus' blood was put up above on that cross for you and I. Because of the blood of the lamb, the Israelites were spared judgment. Because of the blood of Jesus, you and I are spared judgment. And draw another parallel. God spared his people of judgment by taking out the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But in the new covenant, God spares you and I of judgment. And Jesus is the firstborn from the dead who is sacrificed, but becomes the firstborn of the dead for us. And so you can see those Old Testament and New Testament parallels there. I don't just point that out, though, so that it would be interesting for you. I think it's interesting, but I point it out for this reason. Do you feel shackled by the sin and shame of your life? Then be reassured that you have a God who has been in the economy of delivering his people for a very long time. Your stuff 
isn't new for him to deliver you of. He's been doing it since the time of Abraham and before. And so Jesus takes this bread and he takes this cup, he lifts them up and he says, they point, they're about me and what I'm going to do. Those other words, communion. You ever wonder where do we get the word for communion from? If you read 1 Corinthians 10, 16, a page before in, from the text that we're looking at, Paul has this really interesting section, chapter 8 through 10, on meat sacrificed to idols. And he's like, you got to consider the, what you're doing here. Are you sacrificing just to idols or something else? How are others going to perceive you? All, all these kinds of, of things. Will you cause brothers to stumble? And he says, in comparison to all of that, he says in verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing, he's talking about the Lord's Supper here, that we bless, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So catch that word participation twice, koinonia, can be translated as well as fellowship or communion. Right there in God's word, we have something that God's people are supposed to take together. One people, one Lord, one baptism, one meal. Not an individual exercise. It is a community activity. So that's communion. But then there's that third word, the Eucharist, right? So we have the Lord's Supper, got communion, and then the, the Eucharist. Now, when I say that, maybe you think of high church the organ is playing, the incense is up in the air, the priest is consecrating the, the, the sacrament. Think of high ceiling in the church. But it actually comes from Luke's text. In Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, he says this, and when he had took bread, Jesus, when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, and then he said, this is my body, and so on. Eucharistio, you can hear it right there in the word. I give thanks. And so when we use the word Eucharist, it's, it's a word that you, you are allowed to use it as a whole bunch of low church people. We are allowed to use this word, friends, okay? And so when you say thank you, it is a reminder about how prone you and I are to raise our complaints to the Lord are pleased before the Lord, even our doubts. But the Lord's Supper puts me in my place and reminds me that it is a good thing to say thank you. Gratitude is good for the soul. So you got the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, the meal that reminds us of our deliverance, the common meal in which we share together, and it is a moment to say thank you to the Lord for what he's done. So much for these words and their meaning. Over the last several weeks, we've been asking the question, how do you know a church when you've seen it? How do you know a church when you've seen it? And part of the reason we've asked this question, there's two reasons. One, you may not always be here. You may be fine someday if the Lord calls you to another church if you ever move and you transfer your membership there and you're there with that church, that you would be able to go, is this actually a biblical church? We also have been doing this so that you and I would go, is Bethesda being biblical in what we do? Are we being good Bereans? Are we checking ourselves? And so we've said that there's two marks of the church, right preaching of God's word 
And the second one is the right administration or practice of the ordinances. Two of those ordinances. The Lord's Supper would be the second one. The first one would be baptism, and the second one would be the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a one-time thing. One-time response where you put your hand up, go public with your faith, and say, I identify with Christ, his death, and his resurrection. The Lord's Supper, by comparison, is a reoccurring act that the church participates in. And so the normal practice is to enter into the doorway of the church one time through baptism, and then you practice that repeated act of participating in the Lord's Supper. And so with that being said, we're going to dive into what Paul has to say about the Lord's Supper. You should know this. If you ever go, what is Aaron's favorite book of the Bible? It is without a doubt 1 Corinthians um, because of all of the drama and hot topics that are in it. It has everything that you could want. Spiritual gifts, church discipline, women in ministry, a guy who's sleeping with his stepmother, people suing one another, divisions in the church. It goes on and on and on. I have more. I won't get into it, but you look at all of this, and when you, if you've ever thought to yourself, Bethesda is a dysfunctional church, I hope you don't think that, but if you ever did, we've got nothing on these guys. They're so dysfunctional, they're dividing up at the supper of the Lord that he instituted, the very meal that should bring them together. Let me show you how Paul takes them to the woodshed, and he says this in verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Next verse, he says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And so like a good pastor, I love what Paul does. Did you catch that? He says in the first place, but he never gets to his second point. He just takes that first thought and he goes all the way through with it. And he just goes after them. And so Paul says there's divisions. Curiously, in the next verse, in verse 19, he says, there must be divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What is he saying there? It appears that he's saying that by your actions, we can tell who really is a part of the family of God. Unfortunately, it's revealing by your bad actions where you really stand. You think of Jesus' words, you will know them by their fruits, and the fruit was not good in this case. And so if we can do our best at reconstructing what was going on here, I think there's a few things to, to consider. The, the first thing would be this Lord's Supper that was being take, taken part in, it wasn't just this. It would have been a common meal that they would have shared part in together. And so if we have a potluck and we go to the activity center to partake in that, um, it, this would have been church being had in a wealthy person's home where several could come in, and at that meal you would have the Lord's Supper as well. The wealthy seem to have been going ahead with their own private meals, though, separately from those who had nothing. If you go further down in verse 33, Paul says, when you come together, wait for one another. It seems like they weren't waiting for one another. And so the wealthy were going ahead and eating their own private meals. And so the haves... The hads, I guess, they were acting like gluttons and drunks and the have-nots were going without. I want to put a picture up on the screen for you. 
And this is a reconstruction. There's people who, archaeologists who have gone to Corinth and they've seen the ruins there. And this is a reconstruction of one of those ruins. And so if you could kind of imagine possibly what might have happened in a, in a Roman house, you would have had what was called, you would have had what was called the triclinium, which would have been this kind of dining room area right here where it says seven. And then right there is the atrium. And so as I was reading through this this week, it really opened things up for me because the scholarship was saying that you likely would have had the wealthy eating in this separate room by themselves, a good meal. The others who would show up later would be in that atrium area and they would be standing. About 50 people could be in there. Whereas nine or 10 could be around that table. And so you can get that imagery in your head that at the one table that should have been had of the Lord's Supper, Worshiping in unity, the actions of the elite were communicating to the others. We're better than you. And so the root was selfishness, and the fruit was division at the table that should have brought genuine worship. You think of James 2 at this point about partiality. You know James 2. James 2 says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man, by comparison, shabby clothing, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, here, sit in the good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you really fulfill, he says in verse 8 of chapter 2, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. May it never be said of you and I that we judge people on the basis of how much stuff they had and draw a division between the haves and the have-nots. The only line that you and I should be drawing in God's church is not between fellow believers, but between believers and unbelievers. There should never be a hierarchy of those who have the haves and those who are the have-nots. By the way, I should point this out. This is a personal thing for me. This is one of the reasons. I know other pastors who do this, but just so you know, this is why I don't. I refuse to look at the dollar signs of how much people give at Bethesda. And so if you are a, a larger giver, you give more here, versus if you barely have two dimes to put together, for me, out of a conviction to never want to give people special treatment and judge them on the basis of their giving, I, I let our treasurer handle those kinds of things. I know pastors, unfortunately, who, have, who I have seen this cozy up to the big donors in the church at the expense of the have-nots. And it's just so obvious. And so I want to say, if you are someone who God has blessed you in your business and you give more, I want you to know it is our desire as elders to treat you with equality. And that means that we will love you and we will also offer correction when sin comes up. And for those of you who have nothing or very little, we want you to know this. You may have less than others here but I want you to know that you belong and you're supposed to be here. You may be poor in this life, but you are rich because you have Christ in yours. All of us are equal at the foot of the cross. 
sinners. And all of us have that same inherent worth made in the image of God. Let's that be reflected in how we treat others with dignity here. Did you catch those words when he says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse? When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. You think you're doing the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. In other words, it would have been better if you just stayed home. What an indictment to put on someone. You think that you're worshiping genuinely. It would have been better if you didn't even get together because of your selfishness and how you treat others that way. I think that's just such a convicting reminder to you and I. If our selfishness gets in the way of our worship here at Bethesda, let us be careful. What we might call worship, God would call wicked. And I do not want that for us. Let us watch ourselves so that we can have genuine worship. That's up to verse 22. Paul goes forward in verse 23. We've already said this once. We'll repeat it now. We'll repeat it once more when we take it the cup and the bread later. He says in verse 23, Paul says, let me show you how to get this right. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he says, okay, this is the right way to practice the Lord's Supper. Here we go. And so he, he says, I received this from the Lord. Likely, he's not saying this is a direct revelation. You get that from Paul in certain places like Galatians 1. But more likely, what's happening here is he's saying, these words came originally from the Lord himself. And so we should pay attention to them. He says, there's two parts are the bread and the cup. And so we're gonna look at this now. And part of the reason we're gonna spend some time doing this is because we wanna say, what do the words actually mean and what do they say? And we may need to correct some of our own traditions or traditions that we've come from in the process. He begins and he says, when he had given thanks, question for you, who's he giving thanks to? Or what is he giving thanks to? Is he giving thanks to the bread and to the cup? Or is he giving thanks to the Lord? Or Lord, likely it would be as a good Jewish host of a meal, he's giving thanks to the Lord. Aaron, why do you bring that up? For this reason. Some Christians have looked at that and said the giving thanks is directed towards the elements themselves. And so therefore, it is a, it is a word of consecration. So you have in other traditions the elements become transformed because of the words being spoken over them. Is that what's here? I would argue he's simply just saying thank you. He then says, this is my body for you. Those last two words, for you, are dear to my soul. It's a reminder that Jesus doesn't just die, he does it for me, for you. He is our substitute in our place. But those words, this is my body in the history of the church. If you know your church history, you know that those words have been divisive at a table that should have brought unity. Does the bread actually become the body? Does the cup actually become the blood of Christ? When he says, this is my body, or does he mean this symbolizes my body? 
Which one is that? I'll tell you how some traditions have looked at this. And I ask you to lock in here because my desire for you is that when we do this in a few moments, we're doing it not as some sort of magical act, but we know the significance of it. Catholic Church has held to what's called transubstantiation, that at the words of consecration, when the priest holds up the bread and the cup, the priest prays, and those, those sacraments, the bread and the juice themselves, the inner reality of them, the more true reality, become transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. You can hear it right there in the word, transubstance, the substance is being changed. Catholic Church also holds that this right here is a sacrifice. Christ's body is being sacrificed anew at this act when we, when we take part in it. It's the Catholic Church. If you've been in the Reformation class that I went through with many of us over the summer, you know that Martin Luther would show up in the Reformation period and he would say a few things to that. He would say first, he would say, this is no sacrifice. There was only one sacrifice, a man who died once and for all for sin. He doesn't get sacrificed again. That happened one time in the beginning of the, towards the, the early part of the first century. But Luther is going to agree. He is going to say, yes, Jesus does become mysteriously present in these sacraments. Lutheran catechisms you could read will say he is in, with, and under. And so they'll hold to what's called consubstantiation. Don't use that pagan philosophy Catholic church to hold on to the fact that Jesus really becomes part of these elements. Instead, we affirm that reality, but we don't know how. We'll mysteriously affirm it. And so Luther will say, this is my body, really means this is my body, is, means is, equal sign. The bread is the body, the cup is the blood, mysteriously. Do we know how? No but we affirm it by faith. As I said all of that, if you found the two to be similar, you would be right. There's similarities, but big differences. So this is the first two. Let me give you a third. There's more, but I'm gonna get, just give you a third here. And that would be that of Ulrich Zwingli. He held to what we would call the memorial view. And he's going to say, this is my body, means this symbolizes my body. Have you ever taken the time to think to yourself, where is Jesus' human body right now? Like as this church service is going on. Ever thought about that? Zwingli would say, Jesus rises from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of the throne of God. The human body of Christ, our representative has brought our humanity to be in the presence, redeemed humanity, to be in the presence of his father. And so Zwingli would say, Jesus' body isn't there. He has risen. It's there. He would also say, doesn't Jesus say elsewhere, like John 6, does he say, I am the door, I am the bread, I am living water? He's not being literal there. But he's using a metaphor to explain a larger point. And so Zwingli and many others have come along and have said, this points to a greater reality beyond itself. It's so unfortunate that in the history of Christianity, people have divided like, European Christianity has been so divided over this, especially in the 16th century. What should we say? So those are some of the views. What should you and I say when we look at this? Is it actually becoming the actual body of Christ? Or does it symbolize something? Let's ask Paul. What does he say? 
do this in remembrance of me. Verse 24. Verse 25. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep it simple. The elements are symbols to remind you of what Jesus did for you. They are not channels of God's grace. They are not visible signs of an invisible reality that have some magical quality or property in their material. No. They are symbols to point you beyond themselves and appoint you to Calvary instead. On that cross, Isaiah says, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many to make intercession for the transgressors. Don't get lost in the elements as if there's something magical. But by faith, receive the reality. Grab a hold of the reality of God's grace that was accomplished for you on the cross. Not here, but there is where the grace and our hope lies. It is there where you can be reminded of your identity in him. It is there where you can be reminded that he took up his cross for you and so you can take up your cross for him. It is there where you can find acceptance in God though you may not have found ever acceptance in your own parents. It is there where you can find the power for reconciliation in your own broken home this morning. It is there where you can find the strength to persevere despite these present sorrows that are fading away. Doesn't the old song sing? I will not sing it. I will quote it. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's power in the blood. Power. Power. Wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Power. Power. Wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And so if the deeper reality of what these symbols point to are yours in Jesus Christ, you can be able to stand up and say with Hebrews, let us lay aside every single weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, you want a definition of hope? Joy set before him, endured the cross, enduring the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, that we would see, as one pastor has put it, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just the diving board that you jump off of in salvation, but it is the pool that you swim in for the rest of the Christian life until you see Jesus face to face. That is what we have. How often do we need to be reminded of these present effects for us? We receive that cup and it reminds us of the new covenant that we enter into where Christ condescends and he, and he says, I will be this for you. And he puts us in right relationship with him, gives us his Holy Spirit, seals us with him, who never lets us go and we are bonded with him. And so now verse 26 in our passage carries new meaning because Paul's been saying when you come together and all, all the nonsense that you're doing is communicating a horrible message, you get it right, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May have never caught that before. In context, verse 26, 26 says, this is a better message for you to proclaim, the Lord's death until he comes. What a strange thing to proclaim someone's death unless they're alive. What a strange thing. It is a joy that we get to partake in this meal because it is a rehearsal dinner for the main event where the bride and the lamb come together. 
And so this is how you practice the Lord's Supper. This is how you should think of it. So that's the rebuke. This is the right practice. And then Paul will end with a warning. Let's look at this now. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread, verse 27, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. You may want to underline that word, examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so the last thing here, and I have chosen my words carefully, is that we are called, that you and I, you would examine yourself so you would receive the Lord's Supper correctly. Question, what does that word unworthy in the passage mean? He just wants you to partake in an unworthy manner. And then he says, examine yourself. What does that mean? Many Protestants have looked at that and said, I need to, so I wouldn't be unworthy. I need to examine myself. And so that means a private prayer that I pray to the Lord and confess my sins. Short way we could say it is, I got to get right with God before I take the Lord's Supper. And that's what many Christians have understood that to mean. But is that what Paul has in mind when he says, examine yourself? Does he, does he mean private, individual confession before the Lord? Is that what he has in mind? Just so you know, I would advocate confession before partaking of the Lord's Supper. That is a good thing to do. But I do not think that is what is primarily in Paul's mind here as he's telling us this. Remember, we looked at that picture a little while ago. The unworthy manner was the divisive nature in which they were taking the Lord's Supper. It was showing partiality was the haves versus the have-nots. That's the unworthy manner that he's talking about. And he says, when you partake in that way, you become, what a scathing thing to say, just as liable for the death of Jesus as those who crucified him. And so the self-examination shouldn't be just individualistic. It should be corporate. Sure, come to the Lord and say this morning, Lord, how have I sinned against you? And let me get right with you. But the first question you should be asking is this, Lord, have I loved my neighbor as myself? That's the question that we should be asking. Have I treated others who make the body of Christ in the first century or in the 21st century, have I treated them the way I would want to be treated? Not just individual, but corporate self-evaluation. And so when we take part in the Lord's Supper, I want you to ask the question, how have I treated my brother or sister in Christ? Have I treated anybody as lesser? Have I drawn lines of division in God's church? Have I made a community within a community at Bethesda where no one can penetrate into that and that is what I have? We're better than others. You wouldn't say it, but your actions reveal that. I'll let the Holy Spirit do his work in you in that. Consequences, he says, are this. That's why many of you have gotten weak and ill. Some of you have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. It's a great play on words. If you judged yourself, you wouldn't be judged. But because you didn't do that, you're going to be judged. In other words, self-examination is required. If you do not do that, God will bring discipline on you. Do not think for a moment that just because God loves you, do not think that he can't bring down severe discipline even on Christians. 
When he does it, though, it is for your good. I'd ask you to search yourself this morning and ask if the reason why you may feel stuck in life might be because the Lord is against you. You may have been praying for a period of time, Lord, give me that thing. Lord, help me in this area. Lord, provide this for me. And the reason why he's not is because that thing is idolatry and he is jealous for you and he will not give you what you don't need. If he would, it would be judgment, but he doesn't give it to you. Instead, he's putting a roadblock in front of you because by comparison, he wants you to have life in him. When he brings down justice on the world, it's condemnation. When he brings justice down on you and I, it is discipline. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Friend, his desire is not to destroy you. His desire is to destroy the sin in you. Let him do his work. I'll give you a final word and, and then three questions. Unfortunately, I think, I think there's those of us in here, perhaps, that many I've come across, who hear that word unworthy, and they don't apply it to the unworthy manner that we shouldn't be eating in, but they apply it to themselves. And they say, I'm unworthy to receive of the cup. And so I've seen people go, I will forego this because of what is going on in my life or because of the private sin or the brokenness I feel in, feel in my conviction. I'm not good enough to receive communion. And so because of a misplaced legalism, putting a burden on yourself that Jesus does not put on you, they withhold themselves from receiving that which they need the most. They're like Martin Luther. You can't tell, I like Luther. I disagree with him, but I like him. And Luther, the monk, before he becomes Luther the reformer, and he has his inner conflicts where he is thinking of how many sins have I committed, and he'd spend hours in front of the priest, did I confess everything I needed to confess before I would be right with God? And never feeling like he could get right with God. That might be some of us. We come before to the table, and we feel unworthy, and we go, maybe I shouldn't come before. And I'm just here to tell you, friend, you're never going to be worthy to come before this table. You're never going to be able to clean yourself up enough to be right in his sight. Have you looked at pornography this week? Have you committed self-harm? Have you hurt yourself through drunkenness, drugs, or any other kind of abuse? Do you keep trying to put on the shackles of your past or shackles of shame that the Lord continuously is working to break off? And you may have done these things just last night. It is you who most need to come to the table this morning. It is you who most need to be here. Don't withhold yourself out of some misplaced notion that you're not enough. Guess what? You're not enough. Neither am I. That's why we need to come because though we are unworthy, he was worthy for us. You who are once sinner and yet you are declared righteous in his eyes can boldly approach the table of grace this morning. And so do it freely. If you're a sinner, boldly come to these tables and say, I am, but I am also in Christ. The three questions, three words. And so you can tell quite clearly who should be taking part in this Lord's Supper. It is the Christian. It is the believer. 
It is the believer in Christ. And so if you are a believer, we want to welcome you this morning. If you're not a believer, and you know in your heart really whether you don't just know about Christ, but you really know him and he knows you, why would you participate in something that you can't authentically worship in and is not yours? Better to, better to pray and meet with one of us and get right with the Lord by salvation, surrendering your life to him, and then come to the table than to participate in something that is just a bread, just bread and juice and really has no meaning for you. So I want to invite you to that if you don't know him. Believers are welcome to this. I just want to say something briefly I want to challenge you to think about. As we've talked about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some Christians have seen a connection between baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's baptism being a prerequisite to take part in the Lord's Supper. I just want to say two things. If that's you and you're not baptized, in the history of the church, many Christians have believed that. So you've got to wrestle with the history of the church on that. But the second thing I would say to you is this. Why would you take part in the Lord's Supper and be obedient there? If, you're, if you know you should have been baptized, you've been obedient to take part in the Lord's Supper, but you would be, be disobedient to not take part in the other ordinance God gives us. And so while we will accept you this morning, I pray in Christ, in Christian love, that you would be convicted to go, why would I take part in one but not the other? With that, maybe you go, because one's private. Not everybody's gonna see me. That's quite public. I should say, did you notice, we, as we've been talking about the Lord's Supper, it is not something that's individualistic. It is still corporate. But consider these words. Everyone who acknowledges me, Jesus says, before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. You can't just acknowledge the Lord privately. And so my prayer for you is that you would be blessed by both ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is that doorway. The Lord's Supper is the continual reminder. So that's the who. So all are welcome who are believers we pray a word of conviction for those of you who need to be baptized. Second, the where. Where do you do this? Now, well, clearly we're going to do this in this room, but is this room the church? No. We are the church. The Lord's Supper is a community meal that we take part in. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 that we read earlier, it says, this bread that we break is a participation in the body of Christ. Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians 11 in what context? The community, right? He says, that of the ecclesia, which means church, the gathering, the assembly. He says four times, when you come together. If you read chapter 12, 13, and 14, you don't practice spiritual gifts by yourself. You do them to edify the body of Christ together. So the context of everything that Paul is saying is that this is something the body partakes in. I've heard pastors in the past talk about how they take communion with their wives at home, and it's a spiritual exercise that they do together. Do you get any of that from what Paul says here? That would go against the grain. I just want to say this. We love you this much. I love you this much that I don't want to do that by myself. I want to do it with you. We do this together. I think of another concert Justine and I went to in Dallas. It was probably about six, seven years ago. Went to a Hillsong, well, I'm calling them out. I went to a Hillsong conference, uh, concert, and the, the guy gets up and he's saying, we're gonna take part in communion now. And I remember going, there's 10, 
15,000 of us college students, young adult people in here, how in the world are they going to get all of the stuff to us in such a quick moment? Well, what the guy did is he brought one of the kids up, put him on stage, and he took communion on behalf of all of us, which for my like, theological mind was just, just losing it. And I was just going, so this is like a substitute for a substitute. It just doesn't make any sense. I was confused. I was frustrated the rest of the night. That being said, I just want you to think about all of the ways you and I have probably seen the Lord's Supper practiced, that we would go back to this text and go, let's keep it simple. We take part in this as Christians together. When do we do it? Is there anywhere in the Bible that says, thou shalt take the Lord's Supper at the end of the month, every single month? Do you see that? No, it's not, not in the Bible. So why do we do that? Glad you asked. I believe that scripture gives us freedom here. Verse 26 is as close as you're gonna get. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How often? Whenever you do it. That's all we get from Paul. And so whether it's monthly, quarterly, or yearly, what do we do? The elders have simply said, myself and the elders have said, we believe this message is so important for us to hear that we would participate in it frequently. And so that's why we've done this. I know some of you have expressed to me in private your concern that this would become a repetitive ritual if we were to do it monthly. And I understand that. I would point out that we also sing every single week. We preach a sermon. Hopefully you don't say the sermon is repetitive every single week, right? We, we, we read scripture. We do all these things together every week. It is good to be reminded on a regular basis of this and the realities that it holds for us and to say thank you. And so the concern is right though. Let us never let this become a ritual that has no meaning for us. I had a brother of mine come up to me, I think it was in January or February, and he had only been attending here for a short season, and he was, and he was broken up by what he had just witnessed in communion, and he said, when you people at Bethesda take part in the Lord's Supper, it's like you actually believe in it. You actually believe the reality, and I go, well, yeah, that's, that's kind of why we do it, right? And so I want you to think about that. Search yourself. Is this a ritual, or is this something that points to a deeper meaning? We're all equal at the foot of the cross. And so let us therefore approach boldly as a body, remembering what he's done for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com. Com. Or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.